conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Ciate London, Charlotte Knight. At 21, Charlotte Knight moved from London to Dublin, and with little experience in nails and no experience in business ownership, opened Dublin's first ever nail bar. She went into a hair salon for a blow dry, mentioned her idea to the owner and came out with a business plan. People travelled across the country just to see Charlotte, with the young entrepreneur and manicurist soon finding herself in demand backstage at London, New York and Paris Fashion Weeks and on photo shoots as a session nail technician. It was during this time as a session artist that Charlotte first began sketching that now iconic little black bow-adorned bottle, mixing colours and dreaming of what would become Ciate London. Ciate launched in 2009, landing in stores at the height of the world's nail art movement. But it was in 2012, when the brand released its Caviar Nails collection, that things changed almost overnight. Prior to the launch of Caviar, Ciate had four staff and was stocked in about 50 stores. Post-Caviar, the brand found themselves in over 4,000 stores across 35 countries. Nail art and, more specifically, the home manicure trend had hit fever pitch, but given the cyclical nature of the beauty industry, global nail polish sales crashed a mere two and a half years after that launch. Armed with data, a plan, and one of the most creative business minds I've ever come across, Charlotte spearheaded the launch of an entirely new product SKU for Ciate London, Makeup. Today, Ciate is one of the most celebrated brands in the world across both nails and makeup, and this year we'll see the brand release not one but two high-profile collaborations, both of which Charlotte offered up a few big clues about during our chat. In this conversation, Charlotte and I discuss the expectations and subsequent pressure that comes with releasing multiple global first-to-markets. How showing a boardroom at the colour of her knickers led to one of her brand's many successful launches, and why we shouldn't expect a Carol Baskin Faciate collection anytime soon. What is your very, very earliest memory of beauty? Um, so my earliest memory of beauty is with my grandmother. So my grandmother is now 89 years of age. Um, very, very, very dear to me. I actually, every weekend, I still go to her house and manicure her nails. Um, and my earliest memory is watching her get ready for a night out with my grandpa. Um, always, always lippy. And it was Chanel lippy on her lips, never without her lipstick. And in the old kind of fashioned lipstick cases with the mirror. Um, and never, never without a fresh manicure. So... That was always kind of like my my memories growing up as a child. My nan just always looking perfectly stylish, effortless, lippy and manicure in place. Um, and now, you know, 89, she still loves having her manicure done. So, yeah, I probably say that was kind of my first memory of, of watching her and just being in awe of her, putting on her, her lipstick in the mirror. Well, no surprises that you've ended up in the industry you've ended up in then if you've spent all of these years painting her nails for her. 
<laughs> I did a bit of digging and I learned that one of your very earliest jobs was as a waitress, which I heard you were yeah. not particularly good at, but I want to rewind even oh, further. Oh my gosh, where did you read that? Yeah, oh, no, I was I go really, really deep terrible. with these. I was a really terrible waitress. Um my 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 worst story was um basically i worked in this restaurant and they they had they picked certain waitresses and waiters to do the desserts which is just kind of crazy because if you're not actually a good cook like why should you be in charge of the desserts and it was an italian restaurant um and tiramisu obviously you know real traditional italian dish they should have had the italian chefs doing the tiramisu so i hadn't long worked in the restaurant and they said okay, you're on desserts tonight. And I just, the panic in my heart, I was, oh my goodness, I mean, oh. And so I just could hear my mother's voice in my head, you know, because she used to complain at me all the time that I didn't cook enough at home. And I just, you know, wasn't learning all kind of these skills. And so I said, are you sure? And they said, yep, yep, we take turns, you're on dessert tonight, so you need to do tiramisu. And they just handed me this kind of clipboard with the with the recipe. Oh my goodness. And so I made this tiramisu. And they kind of like it was a, it was a it wasn't like a top class Italian restaurant, like it was a pizzeria pasta kind of um, haunt. And so they cheated and they had kind of those sponge fingers that you dipped in espresso and laid them down the bottom, and then you put your layers of mascarpone and then you know, whatever. So it wasn't like fine dining however my tiramisu um was quite soggy and and the worst thing was was that night uh, um a critic from like a top no. sunday, sunday newspaper came into the restaurant and did a review and needless to say the review on the tiramisu was absolutely dreadful and you know i kind of felt at the time like the, the owner of the restaurant was really disappointed and quite angry at me and i at the time, I was like a little bit defensive about it and I was quite heartbroken. But at the same time, what do you expect? Like, exactly. I've never made a tiramisu in my life. And you, you can't like cut corners and put people doing, you know, but have people doing jobs that aren't going to do the job properly. And so it was, it was really, really, really embarrassing. So, yeah, I wasn't the best waitress. <laughs> well, that in mind, I'm guessing... Um hospitality wasn't always the goal so what did you think that you might be when you grew up so um as a as a young girl I kind of always wanted to get into interior design and I used Mm. to always switch up my bedroom so I used to drive my parents bonkers and every six months would want to redecorate my bedroom and you know really kind of go out there with clashing colors on my walls compared to the carpet, compared to the bedspread. And they thought I was nuts because it was always like a complete color clash. Um, And, but looked really cool in my eyes. Um, And so, yeah, interior design was something that I thought that I would kind of move into. And in my early um, years, I was actually working with architects and the interior designers of the Four Seasons Hotel. Um, And so I kind of started in that area um, and thought that that's where my career would progress, but then actually kind of took this huge pivot into beauty um, when I moved to Dublin when I was 21. Now I wanted to ask you about this time because you opened Dublin's first nail bar. Had you already been working in the nail space prior to doing that? 
so it was really kind of strange how I ended up there. Um, I moved to Dublin. I was working with the Four Seasons in London mm -hmm. and they had opened up a new hotel in Canary Wharf. When that project came to an end, they were also building a Four Seasons in Dublin. So they had said to me, do you want to go do the same job with our uh, chain, without, sorry, without hotel in Dublin? So I was kind of like, okay, you know what? I've really enjoyed it. I've loved getting involved with the architects. And I was just assisting architects, interior designers, graphic designers on the whole aesthetics of the hotel. And it was kind of fueling this creativity that I must have had in my veins and um, went to Dublin. And then um, a friend of mine's mother was Irish. So we kind of moved in with her and it was all really cool. And Dublin at the time was just the most electric city. It was so incredible. And I'm not saying it's not now, but they were going through this incredible like burst of economy. It was called the Celtic Tiger. It was insane. Everybody was just having the best time. And we um, we moved there. And then the hotel group fell out with the builders or something or the council and everything got put on hold. Mm. So I found myself in Dublin with no job. I had kind of done this big announcement to family and friends. I'm moving, I'm moving to Dublin, you know, <laughs> I'm going to make something of myself and, you know, a week in, I still hadn't started and it all came to a, um, a kind of big um, halt. So fast forward a couple of weeks and I was in a Tony and Guy hair salon having um, a blow dry and the whole New York nail bar scene had hit London around that time. So there was all these nail bars popping up around London. So I'd kind of really got into my manicures and I was having religious manicures every single week. And the lady that did my nails actually started training courses. So I just went on a training course with her just to learn another skill. So when I was in Ireland, I said to the guy, I'm jumping all over the place, sorry. I said to the guy, why don't you have any nail bars in Dublin? It's crazy. This scene is popping up all over London. It's on fire. And he said to me, well, do you know anything about it? So I, you know, confessed that, well, I've done a course. I know, I know how to do nails. I'm not the best in the world, but I know how to do it. And I know the kind of um, the basics. And he said, well, I actually own this salon. So if you want to take the front of my shop, I will give you the space to open a nail bar. So fast forward two months later, I opened Dublin's first nail bar and it was kind of, I went in for a blow dry and I came out with a business concept. So it, it was a pretty um, incredible moment. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so you were 21. What gives a 21 year old the confidence and the foresight to not only open a business, but open the first business of its kind? I honestly don't know. I just, I don't know. I guess it was low risk because opening a nail bar, it didn't take tons of investment. Sure. Um, and I had learned this new skill and I guess I just, I kind of guess I saw it. I saw an opportunity. I saw a white space and just decided to jump on it. In all honesty, I was naive, you know, like I, I didn't, understand and think through all of the other facets of business and naivety is a very powerful tool <laughs> <laughs> and so to me it was like okay I'm going to open this nail bar and I asked my mom and uh, my parents to, to transfer me over two thousand pounds so I could fit it all out and mm -hmm. and make it a reality and honestly I just thought it would just tick over and make a few hundred um Few hundred, they, their currency at the time was punt, but it obviously turned to euros, but a few hundred punt a, a week and it would just tie me over to be able to fund my amazing party lifestyle I was having in Dublin. And it just went 
bonkers there was there were people traveling all over Ireland to come and get their nails wow. done it was just it was insane and it just skyrocketed so quickly and I guess I needed to mature really quickly and step up to the plate you know I, I may have gone into it quite naive and not knowing everything about business but I sure learned fast because I needed to you know Am I right in saying that you were also at this time doing a regular spot on a Dublin morning show? I was. I was. Yeah. So, well, it kind of came from the nail bar. So the nail bar Mm -hmm. opened, you know, it was the talk of the town. Everybody was traveling there. And one day, one of the presenters who presented on um, the Irish morning show came into the nail bar to have her nails done and we started talking and she said listen I'm going to speak to my um to my producers but I think you should have a spot on the sofa and come in and be kind of like resident beauty um ad advisor so it kind of kicked off from there so I started going in on every Friday and people would call in with their kind of nail woes and 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 various things and I would give advice and it just kind of grew and grew from there and then they had a show called um off the rails which was like a clothes show fashion show where people would come on and they would get styled so they would get like a hair overhaul clothes you know stylist overhaul and then nails and they actually started filming out of my nail bar so whenever they had someone on the show their whole kind of part of their makeover was to also come to the nail bar and have their nails done so is this whole kind of tv career started to build and then that led into the session work because from that i started to get asked to do you know when celebrities were in town to do the manicures for the front cover um shots etc etc and it just kind of you know islands are islands are you know it's a small country and it was the opportunities were just huge because there wasn't an enormous amount of people with that skill set mm-hmm. and it was all, a lot of it was new um, and so i guess it was just right time right place um and you know it was it was incredible i, I just loved my time there Right time, right place, and a lot of hard work. Let's not yeah. <laughs> let's not forget about that part. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you open this nail bar. You're becoming a local celebrity by the sounds of things. People are flocking from all across the country to visit. Then you become something of, I guess, a celebrity manicurist. There are a lot of manicurists out there. I know you've said that Ireland is a small country, but there's mm-hmm. still a lot. What do you think that it was about you and about your approach to everything that you were doing that people were so drawn to? Well, I think at the time there really wasn't any session nail technicians in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So really that whole thing, you know, before the nail bar opened, they didn't even bring a manicurist into a shoot. You wow. know, there'd be a artist, a hairstylist, um, the stylist, the photographer, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't have necessarily had a manicurist on the list. And so I kind of started, when that started, I was there to provide that service. So I don't think it was necessarily I was, you know, picked over others. I honestly think it was a case of I was there when that whole um, uh, service started get adding. Uh, it started to be important on a shoot, whereas before it just didn't. You know, someone got asked, you know, please come with tidy nails, please come with a fresh manicure, and and all of a sudden, you know, then I was on 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 set to be able to do that for them. 
Um, and then obviously when you build a rapport with people, you know, I started to build a rapport, you build your network. When you're working on any type of shoot, when you find your right little kind of crowd or your team, you tend to find that people will rebook that same team because it worked. Everybody gelled, everybody had the same work ethic. We, you know, the, the designer or the magazine got the results they needed out of the day. There was no drama. Cause you know, you can imagine how many egos you can sometimes have. On I don't have to imagine. Don't you worry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so when you find a, a group of people who, you know, highly creative people can be quite different characters. And when everyone comes together and they create magic with no drama, that crew, that team normally get rebooked together. So I guess it was just more about, you know, turning up, being professional, having a creative vision, creating some great work and then leaving with no fuss or no kind of no drama. And, and I think that just was, was really welcomed and it just enabled me to obviously catapult that side of my career quite quickly. God, you'd think that no drama is not a huge ask, but unfortunately <laughs> it is. It really is, yeah. And we obviously, as, you know, the brand now, we're always shooting. You know, we do shoots yeah. every three months. And so we're forever having to build the team and do casting and everything. And I, I can say when we find a great team and we've got a great photographer, great makeup artist, great great everybody, great models, when it works and it fits, it's just the most incredible day and incredible work is created. But there's other times where it's, you just kind of have your head in your hands thinking, oh my goodness, when is this going to end? Because it just is painful. And so now that I'm on the other side, I get it even more, you know? But it's not dissimilar to say a product formula. If you've got one ingredient in there, that's not quite right the whole formula, the end result isn't going to be as good as it could be. But then when every single bit lines up and it's, you know, you're ticking every box, heaven. Absolutely. You're totally right. Were there any lessons that you took from that time when you've got, you've got the salon, you're doing session work, you've been doing fashion week, when your career in beauty was really still in its infancy, any lessons from that time that you find you're still applying to your work now? Yeah, I think um, professionalism is so key. I think sometimes when you are in these environments, sometimes people can be some, a little over familiar mm -hmm. sometimes and professionalism is, is not highly regarded sometimes. And I think I've always maintained throughout my career, even from the early days till today, you know, you can build wonderful relationships with people, you can have fantastic rapport, but there always has to be a sense of professionalism because sometimes that's lessened and it can bite you in the bottom sometimes, you know? So um, I, I guess the other, the other probably biggest lesson is just to focus. I think sometimes you can spread yourself so thin. You've got so many asks of you. You can, you have to focus and you have to know your limitations because if you kind of commit yourself to everything, you, you could potentially be average at everything instead of being you know excel at the things that you really focus on so i've tried to take that through through the years i think that's such sound advice now at what point did you begin to notice a gap for what would eventually become ciate london what did you find to be missing from the existing polish offering 
so when I was working on the shoots and things, you get a lot of downtime and I always used to sit there sketching what my bottles of polish would look like if I ever launched them. And I guess it was less about a white space in polish because there's always been plenty of, plenty of nail polish brands around that, you know, the market at that time was very much dominated by the SEs and the OPIs of the world. And did the world really need another nail polish? Probably not. But what I really wanted to do, and it was, you know, it took time to, to realize this, was take runway to retail. And the nail polish was just the first start of the journey, just to ease ourselves into having a brand and, and having um, a foundation for what we were going to do. But the real object, that the real kind of um, objective was to create some of these runway looks that we were doing with you know, designers around the world and make them into a retail-friendly, consumer-friendly, foolproof DIY manicure set. So that was kind of like the real objective. Um, and I think that massively filled the white space. You know, When we launched the Caviar Manicure back in 2012, it was electric. It was just insane. And when, we, when, we, uh, when I created that product, I had no no uh, expectation. I, I, we launched it, but I never knew that it was going to be as in huge as it was, you know? I mean, how could you? And um, even from the early days when we first showed Sephora, the concept, Sephora in the US, they were, they just were in, just, just, they just lost their minds over this product. They were just giddy. Um, and when we, when we went into production on the first run, we had to produce, they wanted to order 128,000 units of this product. What? So can you, yeah. So can you imagine like I'm there, I've got an office of five people in my team. We are a very teeny tiny brand. Um, the turnover is like a couple of hundred thousand a year, tiny. Um, the, the caviar manicure was created on a, on a photo set photo studio in a photo studio I had a tiny tiny bottle of beads from Michael's the craft store in New York and we started playing around with the beads I, I put the model's lips into the beads on a plate um, and we started playing with it I then sprinkled them onto her nails we got this like really iconic image that ended up being the image on the front of the pack and I sent it to Sephora and just said oh hey you know just wanted to show you our new product that we're working on and the buyer was just as I said, giddy, just giddy. And before we knew it, we had a purchase order for this 128,000 sets. And I had no idea how we were even going to industrialize this, you know, from a little tiny pot yeah. of beads to industrializing to that kind of magnitude. It was, it was so frightening. It was, it was frightening, but exhilarating. It was the most insane feeling because whilst there was so much fear running through my um, veins there was also so much excitement and it was almost like serotonin rushing through me because it was almost like this is our moment this is our moment that you know could be the making of us and and people you know really could um really could kind of sit up and and know who we're you know who know who we are so we we shipped in the, the stock to sephora and it sold out within 10 days and that's oh my when we god like, yeah that's when we were like, my God, we have got such an ace product on us. And so we just kept producing and it kept getting bigger and bigger. And it was just, oh, it was just unbelievable. You know, when you think about a moment in your life where everything was just, 
every part of your body was just like, oh, (laughs) that was that moment. (laughs) I love that. I'm going to come back to caviar because it was Mm -hmm. such a moment. So I have naturally a, a lot of questions. I would love to talk more about 2009 when you launched. Mm -hmm. I love to spend a bit of time on the process of physically launching because it's one thing to have this great idea, but then to actually actually launch, sorry, a brand is another thing entirely. And I feel like we gloss over it because it's never a particularly glamorous, you know, sexy time launching a product. So how did you how did you go about it? How did you find a lab? How did you decide what went into the formula? even sourcing and deciding on the packaging. There are so many bits and pieces that come into play. Yeah, so because I had spent so long kind of sketching what my bottles would look like and things and playing around with that, I knew that when I went into production, I wanted the bottle to deliver the most foolproof um, way for someone to paint their own nails. So it wasn't designed with a nail technician in mind painting somebody else's it was more how can I make it easier for the customer the consumer to paint their own nails so all of the bottles had this kind of um, curve about them so you could put them into the palm of your hand and it would ergonomically sit into your hand the handles were long so you could hold the base of the handle and be really close to the brush because the closer you are to the brush the more control that you have over where you place the brush The brush was wide, so you could paint your nails in even two really easy strokes. And even the edge of the brush brush was curved. So when you pushed the polish back into your cuticle and then pulled it forward, it would actually um, curve in line with your natural cuticle. So all of these kind of little elements probably kind of come from my years working in, in, you know, the interiors and the architecture side of things. And it was, okay, if this was a building or if this was a, if this was, you know, something like that, how would it need to behave? How would it need to be shaped? How are we going to give the best experience to the consumer? And so approaching it from a design point of view, um, I think we kind of ticked so many boxes with the customer experience because you know when you are using a really skinny nail polish brush it makes painting so much harder if you are holding yeah and if you are holding a really clunky bottle in your hand you kind of lose control of what you're doing because you're focusing on this kind of big clunky bottle that you're holding so the whole element of the packaging was very well thought through and then the formula just had to be the best of the best it had to be a professional um formula that was gonna had no compromise so it needed to give you maximum gloss maximum wear maximum pigment all in one formula um and then every single bottle was finished with a black satin bow attached to the outside of the bottle unfortunately we had to give up on the real bows a few years ago just because they were a logistical nightmare but that's how we started and everybody loved it because it was kind of a bit of fashion um into beauty um which we loved and you know we got so much press for it but it just got to the point where we had to just stop because the amount of like bows that came undone and just looked horrible on the bottles and it was a big decision but like no more actual bows and we had to print them on but anyway at the beginning we had these beautiful black satin bows attached to the outside of every single bottle so looking for labs um believe it or not there's only a three major nail polish labs in the world who produce quality yeah who produce quality outstanding nail polish 
um, and one's in France, one's in America, and the other one is in Luxembourg. And they, so finding a lab and working with a lab was pretty simplistic because it wasn't like we were wading through right. tons of manufacturers and trying to figure out who's best for what. Um, and, and from a development point of view, because nail polish does have a certain amount of solvent um, in it, um, the testing that you didn't need to do the level of testing in certain, you know, you know, it's going into a glass bottle. It's been fully tested in that glass, but in a, in glass. So you don't, you don't have to go through months and months of kind of st stability and compatibility testing like you would with makeup and, and skincare. So that side of things was pretty um, easy. The, the packaging side was tougher, obviously, because we needed to open a mold and every single aspect of it needed to be custom made. And then obviously choosing our shades. So that was the most fun bit, you know, actually deciding, okay, we've got 24 nail polishes. What shades are we going for? And that was really fun. I loved that part. Um, and yeah, so 2009 we launched and and as i said it was really super teeny tiny with 24 nail polishes um and treatments and yeah we, we went about it and, and started to build the brand from there i'm glad you mentioned that deciding on the shades was the really fun part because i've been so excited to talk to you about color because i feel like with makeup which of course we will get to it, there are kind of parameters that you have to work within as far as colour, not so much with eyeshadow, but there's still, you know, limitations there. But with nails, anything goes. You have every every possible colour at your disposal. So how do you edit that down to a collection of 24? How does that process go? Yeah, so I think, um, obviously, I can't remember what was trending and what was happening in 2009, but as with any collection we've ever launched – we would have a obviously it was the launch so we'd have had a core collection of like your classics your classic nudes your classic red um your deep reds etc making sure that you've got those those classic shades um available and then the kind of collection shades the limited edition shades would would always have been whether it was the launch or future collections we would kind of look at trend forecasting look what's happening on the runways look what colors are trending what textures are trending and create a capsule collection around all of that but i've always been fascinated just with you know, there is inspiration all around us. If you, you know, look around, you stay in a hotel and you look around the hotel walls and there's all these different textures and stones and tiles and mosaics. And even if you, you know, tropical fish, like if you actually study tropical fish and the insane colors and textures and, and oh, the, the clashing combinations on tropical fish, it's just the most magical thing. So just keeping your eyes open all the time there is texture and pigment and color inspiration around us everywhere so colors would come to me from the most insane places you know we could i could be out for, with friends for lunch and there would be a terracotta pot with some flowers in it and i'd be snapping away taking pictures of that terracotta because i'm this has to be a nail polish shade or um diff just different things i mean in honesty, once upon a time, um, a range of um, like knickers. I don't know if you guys call them knickers, but like panties. I do. Most people don't call them knickers, but I'm a, you okay. know. So this range of knickers launched in America called Hanky Panky. And I was like mm -hmm. obsessed. And it's like these really, really comfortable um, knickers. Anyway, 
I had them in every single color, all these bright colors and neon colors. And I just loved wearing bright colored undies. And one day we were in a meeting deciding the next collection and we were talking about green and green's a really funny shade because you know, it's hard to get it right. And there's so many greens and you have to get a green that's universal and it's going to match so many skin tones. And so we're, <laughs> chatting away in this meeting and I'm no 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 I know exactly what green I mean I'm like palm tree green and everyone's like this kind of green that kind of green and it got to the point where I'm like pulled my I had my hanky panky green pants on and I was like okay I know the exact green I want and I'm like pulling the top of my um pants over over my jeans and I'm like this green and they're like I can't believe we're going to match a nail polish from CK's knickers and i'm well, like okay we don't do. have to ever tell anyone but this is just a great green i'm not like showing you my full knickers i'm just showing you the top of them <laughs> so it's like when you see a color that you just like that that's the one that's the exact shade red's another one red's such a challenging shade to get right you know the perfect red that's going to suit every skin tone um and it's the same for lipstick but you know when you find that red and you you know it, 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 yeah, I mean, you can just add a tiny bit more pigment of a certain color and it doesn't work anymore. So there is like balancing and getting it perfectly right is, is an art, I think. I mean, I love the notion of we don't have to tell anyone this, but here you are telling this story. On- <laughs> yeah, but it's a really old story now. So it happened so many years ago that I can tell it now. It's just at the time I couldn't tell it, you know. <laughs> Perfect. You've waited just long enough. I want to come back to caviar now because it's, I mean, it was too big a moment to not spend more time on. As you've said, that launch was in 2012. It came from you playing with these tiny craft beads on set. Prior to the launch of caviar, you had five staff and were stocked in about 50 stores. Post caviar, you were in 4,000 stores across 35 countries. What kind of challenges does that kind of growth and at that rate present a brand and how did you survive it? So, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what happened. We caviar hit the stores in Sephora, sold out within 10 days and suddenly they wanted to reorder. And all of these retailers from all around the world were emailing us. It was incredible asking you know how do we not have you in our stores already how quickly can we get you to our stores and so we couldn't even keep up with the production it was crazy but what i knew we had to do was massively scale and fast because with all of this new revenue um we needed to have operational team and proper finance team and a whole product development team marketing team everything and so I found office space and we just went out and just started hiring and and recruiting. Recruiting was probably one of the hardest challenges because Mm -hmm. to find exceptional talent in a very short space of time with uh, in that many people, I mean, you know, you can find exceptional talent, but when you need to hire 30 people over a six month period, that's tough. And you, you know, you can imagine how much time sifting through CVs, going through a sequence of interviews, like it's so draining and you've got that happening alongside this brand that's just kind of growing so fast that you're trying to kind of keep up with it. And then we knew that caviar would not live forever. It's not that kind of product. It was, we knew it was quite faddy. And so then the pressure is on as a, as a brand to not be that one hit wonder 
that kind of comes and then disappears off the face of the earth. And so the pressure was on to make sure that we had something as incredible next. And the press would, you know, the press would ask what's next or retailers would say, okay, this was great, but now you need to anniversary that launch. And that was kind of the bit that was the biggest, another big challenge of, you know, if you have great sales with a retailer and they, they are off the chart, they're going to expect you to then deliver plus numbers the following season or the following year. Um, and so we needed to ramp up our development. We And then after Caviar, we launched the Velvet Manicure, which was a way to kind of apply texture to your nails. So we then basically went on this mission to launch a brand new DIY retail, a runway to retail manicure every four months for the two years after Caviar. So it was incredibly challenging, um, but I can only remember the time. I don't remember the time and re just remembering the stress. I just remember the time and remembering the joy and pleasure and just satisfaction that I got from just watching this happen. You know, I, I just don't remember the stress. It, it was incredibly stressful and, and, you know, worked so hard. But the, the joy that came from it just superseded all of that, you know? Mm. Well, things changed again in around 2014-15 when global nail polish sales took something of a dive. Yeah. In retrospect, do you think that there was a specific reason for that or can it just be boiled down to this kind of cyclical nature of beauty? Well, at the time, I didn't really understand what on earth was going on, if I'm mm -hmm. honest. At, sure. but, one of our, but one of our suppliers shared with us some Mintel data, which showed that over the last four decades, nail has been very cyclical and had these seven year cycles, seven year cycles of almighty growth and then flawed. And when I was given this uh, data, it was so reassuring uh, because I, you know, at the time it was so frightening. You know, we had, a, we built an entire business on nail we were used to walking into our retailers and showing our new launches and, you know, they would just say without diving into any detail, they would just say, okay, we want to take, you know, and I'm talking ridiculous numbers. We want to take this, 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 and we want a hundred thousand of those and 50,000 of those. And it was just bonkers. And then what happened within six months of that time in 2014, we were having meetings where it was, mm, we're shrinking our nail assortment. So I think we're only going to take one and we're probably just going to take maybe 10 to 15,000. And it was, we were coming away from those meetings thinking, oh my goodness, what on earth is going on? Like, how is this happening? And you don't actually know, is it just us? Is this just mm. happening to us? Or we didn't realize that it was happening globally and all other nail brands were also suffering the same pain. So thankfully, this supplier of ours shared us this Mintel um, data and it was almost like, oh, thank goodness. So it's not just us. This is a global um, issue and it has happened over the decades. And so when I started to think about my experiences in nail over the three decades I had been on the planet, I guess I, guess I could kind of... Um, point to those mighty growths you know like when acrylic nails were huge when i was mm. a teenager and everyone would have them like square and really huge and da 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 and i could kind of like pinpoint these moments where it must have been on the top of these peaks um and and when we launched caviar was 
just the absolute top of the peak um, and nail art was on fire. It was, an, it was incredible timing, but as it started to drop, people started to move to kind of classic reds, classic nudes. The runway would start you wearing just plain nude nails. The A-listers would be on the red carpet. They would no longer be wearing garish nails. There would be no nail art. You'd see them wearing a classic red or a classic kind of rouge noir. Um, and that then obviously penetrates down to what the press are talking about, what the press yes. are calling out as trends. And then that then um, penetrates down to the consumer. And so it's almost like a domino effect. Um, but because the rise of nail in 2011, 2012 was so gigantic that every brand makeup brand who had really never played in nail before started to really play in nail. If you recall, Mac had a whole yeah. installation around nail. They were doing billboard advertising for their nail polish. Can you imagine? Like in New York, Times Square, there was gigantic adverts on the side of buildings around Mac's nail polish. No makeup, just nail. Lancome was massively investing in nail. There was, there was brands just putting nail at the forefront of their product development. There was full page adver advertising and magazines around nail. So if you think you had the existing nail brands, then you had other brands playing into nail. There was just an incomplete saturation of nail polish. The retailers had assigned aisles upon aisles to nail. Sephora had this huge boat-like animation installation in their stores full of nail polish. Um, and then, you know, the market changed. There was a behavioral shift. Um, gel polish launched. Uh -huh. And that changed, that changed things hugely because suddenly the consumer was like, ah, oh, why would I use nail polish? Gel polish gives me a manicure that's super glossy. I can walk out of the salon immediately. I don't have to wait for it to dry. And it's gonna stay on my nails for the next three weeks if I want it to. So that really kind of, that launching changed the game a lot for regular polish. Now, obviously people now are more educated about gel polish. They actually don't want to use it so much because they've seen how much it damaged. I, I loved having gel every now and then, but if you're religiously wearing it, your nails, like they can't cope because it dehydrates them, right? So um, that definitely was a catalyst to the down, the down, um, the downfall of nail. But anyway, we rode it out, and um, obviously, the next thing we're probably going to talk about is why did we then launch color, right? Because that's <laughs> how it happened. <laughs> well, I was—I mean, my next question, of course, color launched in two thousand fifteen, but. Yeah. Were there any other, apart from that one, launching an entirely new product skew, were there any other changes that you had to make insofar as running the business? Um, we didn't make changes as such because we started to conceptualise what Ciate would look like as a colour brand. Sure. And what we knew... What we knew is that we were we had become um, known for innovation, pigment, texture, and color. So we challenged ourselves and said, okay, rather than be in this one category of nail, which is now incredibly challenging, and you know we we can't we don't know how long you know this seven if this seven year cycle thing is true, because you look at a bit of data and you think, well, is that going to how it's going to be? Are we going to have to sit this out for seven years? Um, 
we we said can we have can we realize the levels of creat creativity that we've had in in color and in other categories so that was such an almighty job and such an almighty task that there were no changes that we could make. We didn't downsize, we didn't reduce the team because actually we needed people to be more hands on deck than ever because manufacturing, formulating, designing a color range is way more intensive and, and complicated than the nail. So in fact, we had to actually increase the team and bring in experts in color to make sure that we, we, you know, we were going to deliver something to the market that was exceptional and, 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 and what, what consumers wanted. How does the process of creating makeup, colour cosmetics, differ from creating in the space that you'd really exclusively worked in up until that point? So the first huge difference is that there's so many more manufacturers of colour. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Italy is a huge hub for premium color cosmetics and uh, in Europe anyway. And um, we there are many, many, many uh, manufacturers in Italy. And, you know, some of them are exceptional at powders, other emulsions, you know, some you'll definitely go to for your lip. Others are like the number one mascara manufacturer. So navigating that space is definitely much more intensive than nail because as i mentioned to you there's three major nail mm. manufacturers um and just in terms of compatibility so when you have decided upon your chosen formulation or you have worked with the labs to create your formulation from scratch you then have to make sure that the packaging and the componentry that you want to use is compatible with the actual formulation. So it is way more complicated. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, there's so many more regulations when it comes to color. You know, there are banned pigments that you can't use on your eye, but you can use them on your lip and, you know, certain areas of the face that you can use certain pigments and then you can't use others. Um, so it restricts certain colors that you can work with. Um, and that, so therefore, you know, you mentioned nail is anything goes, whereas color, it's a minefield and so much more red tape that you have to consider. And also as, because we existed in 35 territories, what might be okay for one territory is absolutely not okay for another one. So not only are you having to create product, but you're also having to then think about territory ter territory specific product um or you have to you know formulate and make sure that your product is going to be able to be sold in all of those territories so you know before color we didn't hire a technical and regulatory manager because we didn't need to and obviously as soon as we launched color we needed we immediately needed to make that higher because you know there's so many labeling requirements that you have to consider and just so much regulatory um, elements that we never had in nail. All of the colour cosmetics launches that have come from Ciate have been just as innovative as that caviar launch that we've talked about, which is a real mix of efficacy and fun, which is a difficult balance to strike, but you manage to do it every time. Could you talk me through the product development process and how that works for you? Are you constantly thinking of what's going to come next or are you working off consumer demand or is it a bit of both? Um, so we tend to launch about four collections a year um, and in those collections is probably three to four products. So we, it's, it's more consumer demand, yes, but you can't 
be super reactive with that. So we obviously onboard our communities um, thoughts and dreams and desires, but it takes at least nine to 12 months to bring that to a reality for all because of all the reasons that I just said. Um, we tend to think out the box as much as as much as we can, you know, we've never wanted to be average. We've never just wanted to just launch another cream blush or another liquid lip. Everything that we've done, we've wanted to either fix a problem that exists with the product, make it better, make it do more, um, make it work harder for a consumer, make the product easier to use. Um, so it's much more approachable um, and accessible by people because sometimes some makeup can be in intimidating. People think they see a makeup product being used and think oh, I wouldn't be able to do that or I wouldn't be able to recreate that look. So we try to make everything that we do just effortless and, and I've, I've used the word foolproof a lot. And it's, that's exactly what we try to achieve that anyone could recreate the look or recreate the, um, the effect. And so we will always look for white space in the industry and try to disrupt that white space in any way that we can. Um, and I guess by going into our product development process with that kind of attitude is how we've ensured to stay true to our DNA um, as we've evolved as a brand. Because I, you know, I've I watch and study brands all the time, and it's so it's so common for brands to kind of veer off track and kind of go off brand and suffer with a bit of FOMO because they see X brand doing something over here and they want to jump on that bandwagon, but it, it just doesn't make sense for that brand at all. And so something I've been very conscious of is to not do that. Mm. And whilst you can respect and love and enjoy things that are happening out in the industry, you know, however tempting it can be, to jump on that trend or jump on that thing that's happening. If it's not right for us and it's not right for the brand, then you just have to stay true to, to what, you know, what we're about. And the whole emotional um, platform of Ciate is beauty unexpected. And we just want that unexpected emotion and wow factor when somebody tries one of our products um and that can be from you know it transforms and it you know it's not as it seems or maybe um you know glitter flip comes to mind as far right. as transforming <laughs> um and and just try to and even with our collaborations you know we look for collaborations where others are not looking and even with the collaborations we want that wow factor we want people to kind of say wow that was unexpected and it could be by applying the mascara to their lashes or, you know, uh, wiping, slicking over our shadow flip onto their eyelids or whatever it may be, we want that, you know, that wow factor emotion for, for people. You have just handed me my segue on a silver platter. Thank you very much because I wanted to talk about collaborations because Ciate's approach to collaborations is sincerely unlike anything I've ever seen before. I know that you have collaborated with actual people like the likes yeah. of Olivia Palermo, but in recent years we've seen you launch collections inspired by Jessica Rabbit um, and my personal favourite character across anything of all time, Miss Piggy, my yeah. spirit animal in every sense. <laughs> how did these partnerships with the likes of Disney come to be and how does that process differ from a more traditional quote-unquote um collaboration 
Mm -hmm. So we, our first kind of venture into collaborations were, as you say, with Olivia, she, mm -hmm. we appointed her as our guest creative director when we first entered into the colour. She was kind of everyone's uh, fashion icon at that time. And we felt like by nominating her as a guest creative director, we would get kind of that credibility very quickly. And then we ventured into Chloe Morello. Australian born and bred she's such a babe she's so amazing actually, she's incredible and we did two collab two collections with Chloe they were both a roaring success and she was just the most easiest most down-to-earth incredible person to collaborate with so then when we moved from real people to um, a character we thought well, this has to be a lot simpler, right? Because it's it's a cartoon, so there's not going to be any kind of pushback. Famous last words. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was quite challenging. I mean, you know, Disney is a huge corporation, and there's so many people that have to go through the approval process. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just it's quite long. The approval process takes a very long time. They're just really corporate, so yeah. they have to have those controls. If you think how many people have Disney licenses around the world and how many different products they have in their licensing, they have to have such strong controls over everything. Otherwise, you know, it affects their brand. So rightly so. I think it was just a huge wake up call for us because we just weren't used to anything like it before. Um, so when we started on Jessica Rabbit, I just have always loved her as a character. I love the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. If you think about, it was so advanced for the time, you know, that was mm. filmed, that, was, that came to our screens in the late eighties, such a nostalgic movie. Um, I can still watch it today and be still, mesmerized by it it's it's just brilliant and she's just this fearless sassy powerhouse and if you think about most fairy tales most cartoons the princess is being saved by the prince and she's all feeble and she needs the prince to come and save her and she's asleep she for most of the story right exactly and um and and so she was just this badass who rescued the man slash rabbit and, you know, she was sexy. She was a bombshell. She was just like the ultimate babe. And so we really felt that we could realize something quite special with our collaboration. I, it's probably my most favorite collaboration that we've ever done. I just loved every aspect of it. But what's really challenging in the world of Disney is when you collaborate with certain characters, you can't take them out of their world. So, mm -hmm. you know, we wanted to do all this fun stuff and take Jessica and place her onto the red carpet of the Met Gala and have her kind of walking behind Kim Kardashian or whatever. And they just wouldn't let us do any of these things. We wanted to make her current because the average Gen Z slash young millennial may not have seen the movie and they might not be familiar. And we were just really trying to kind of make her current. We wanted to put her at the Oscars and all of these various things. And um they just w were quite restrictive in what we could do so that was probably really challenging and even down to like the social content you know we wanted her to come behind the curtain you know when her leg goes behind the curtain yes. and she comes out and she's singing we couldn't use any of the music because that's Kathleen Turner singing and so we couldn't use so many facets of it that it was so much more challenging because the, le the less assets that you've got the more the team had to kind of think on their feet to, to, to really bring it to life. But I, I was so proud of it. It was so incredible. It was so well received. Um, so then we, um, 
launched the Smiley World collection last year. So the Smiley um, is the original yellow smiley face icon. That has been around for decades. It was like the icon of the rave culture. Um, and it was on our, it was on the scene way before emoji and all of those things. And basically we had already, already planned to do this collection and it was very much about trying to kind of encourage people to stop this cancel culture and just to smile, be positive, love each other and just give a reason, you know, give someone a reason to smile. And anyway, COVID hit and we were thinking, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? We've got this huge collection, but we decided to continue um, and not pause and instead pivot. So we launched the collection in July as we had planned to last July and actually did this most incredible marketing stunt where we projected a huge um, smiley icon, gave it some lashes and lipstick of course and projected it on the side of Westminster Abbey in London along the River Thames and shone the, the face, the big huge smiley face was shining on St Thomas's Hospital where there were so many people fighting for their lives from COVID and NHS were on the front line, you know, trying to save as many lives as possible. And we have never done a marketing campaign ever with so much reach as that campaign because we didn't even talk about the makeup. We just, the whole thing was just like, stop, take a moment, just smile. There's better days coming. We're going to get through this. Let's just support each other. Let's stop the negativity. Let's stop the trolling. Let's stop trying to cancel each other and just come together as, as, as one. And it was, it was insane. It was really, really, really incredible. And we kind of formulated the products with um, mood boosting poppy seed extract and energizing cacao. And just the whole thing about the collection was just, just amazing and happy and just fun. And then Miss Piggy. So I've always been, you just said it, spirit animal. I've always loved Miss Piggy. She is just a fearless, badass, says what she thinks. She just doesn't, you know, hold back. Um, and she's been rocking body positivity for four decades. She's hugely successful. She's all about empowerment. Um, and we just felt that she was just synonymous with the Ciate woman. And so we collaborated with Miss Piggy. Again, it is actually Disney. It's Disney and the Muppet Studio. Um, and so we knew what we were getting into this time, though. That's the difference. When you know what you're getting into, you approach it um, prepared, right? So sure. we knew there were going to be limitations um, to the collaboration. Unfortunately, because of COVID, we weren't able to realize all of the exciting marketing plans that we had. We were going to do a whole on the couch with Miss Piggy and have press oh. interview Miss Piggy and um, do Q&A sessions on, on, um, on, with interviews and things. And unfortunately, she has a whole entourage of a production team that has to travel with her. And it just wasn't feasible with um, the travel restrictions and things in the US. So we weren't actually able to do a lot of the fun things that we wanted to do. But the collection was so great. Loved it. You know, everything was scented with um, donut everything had donut scent to the product because that's her favorite food of course so just every little aspect of even even the blending sponge had little snout nostrils cut out of it so you had your little nose at the end but if you haven't got the collection we'll have to get it to you asap because it's just so much fun she's my favorite it's exactly what you were saying about jessica rabbit i grew up watching the the original muppet show from the 60s yeah. and i had never seen 
uh, a female in any sort of, you know, with your Disney princesses, princesses and so forth, which I also loved, but I'd never seen a woman not playing hard to get. Yeah. She wasn't a damsel in distress in the tower. She was just going after the frog. Yeah. That's all she oh, cared yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her career, you know. Oh, yeah. She was going after the frog and she was, you know, going after her career and she knew she had she was set for stardom and, and that's what she, you know, that's what she did. But it's quite strange when you do these collaborations, you're always referring them to, you're always referring to them with Disney when you're on calls as things like, oh, she, and then you make them this real, real life thing. Yeah. So I remember just after the Jessica Rabbit collection launched and I decided to watch the film um, just for, you know, just also a bit like, you know what, I'm going to watch it again. And when Jessica came out from behind the curtain and did the whole thing, this in my mind, I was like, oh, there she is. Like as if I had this like, oh, there's Jessica, as if I've got this like relationship with her or something. It's so crazy. <laughs> there's my friend Jessica in her best <laughs> role. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Okay, I'm glad it's not just me then. I know, I know. <laughs> now, you have been a part of the beauty industry since you were 21 and you've sat at the helm of your brand since 2009. Over the last few years, let's say over the last five to ten years, what have been some of the biggest changes that you have seen within the beauty industry? Um, so obviously the, the rise of social media and that whole space has changed everything hugely. You used to be able to design a collection and pretty much have a sure bet of what the tones will be, what the color palette's going to be, you know, full, you're going to go for your berries and your rich kind of tones and metallics and spring is going to be all about pastels. And then summer, we're going to do some neons and social media and that whole world and YouTube just flipped that on its head and the obviously the influencer because you know you can think that you're going to have a certain you know collection sell through over a season but if Kylie Jenner decides to wear a bright cobalt blue in the middle of November scrap all your plans because you're not selling any deep red best you get your cobalt blue shades <laughs> from out the back and hope you still have some because that's all everybody wants. So I think the influencer um, has hugely changed the game. But at the same time, I feel like we're also kind of doing a bit of a 360. So in the middle of this 10 years, it was, you know, everyone was focusing on the influencer and brands were throwing money at that side of it. And I think that the makeup artist, the true artist, the key opinion leader was kind of left behind a little bit for a while and I do feel like that has taking a bit of a, 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 a 360 because now I'm loving the fact that makeup artists are getting the credit again that they deserve not just makeup artists hairdressers makeup artists you know whoever it may be and you know many of them were very clever and kind of made themselves a hybrid of artists and influencer and obviously that was fantastic but also with the traditional PR you know for many years people were not focusing on traditional PR they were not why you know taking press out for dinner and focusing on that traditional journalist and they were focusing instead on flying influencers all around the world on trips to Bora Bora or whatever and and now I'm seeing that actually there's been a huge shift back to traditional PR because the average you know, millennial Gen X, they actually do want to read a real magazine. They do actually want to pick up a magazine and flick through it and read 
what a journalist who's of a similar age to them is writing about and which products they use on their skin or they use as their makeup. And um, I do think that, you know, the whole sponsored, um, the whole regulations around advertising and adding all of this additional um, call outs on, on content, you know, with hashtag ad, hashtag spawn, that really kind of um, diluted the influential impact or the impact from influencers um, and I don't think that brands were any longer seeing the types of conversion and um, sales that they may have seen before because I think with anything consumers just become savvy they know that people are getting paid to say that it's not authentic anymore um, it's certainly not organic um, and so kind of like I feel like that's what's happened over the 10 years but I feel like we're starting to kind of migrate back a little bit to how things were before you know i mean we've sort of just touched on this but what big changes do you think we can expect to see over the coming few years well i think that we are going to see more and more people refocusing on traditional pr more and more and yeah. more and more um and the importance of that i'm hoping that a lot of the magazines will you know because a lot of magazines have closed right yeah. through this time very very challenging and i'm hoping for the ones that manage to hold on that they'll start to see a resurgence again because like i said i think people miss that tactile um moment of flicking through a real book because they've been on a kindle or a real magazine because they're reading everything online or um um what was i going to say sorry i've lost my words um so um yeah so having a magazine having a real book and also um oh my god my mind i'm so sorry my mind no, never apologize <laughs> it's just gone completely blank but i like that answer though more of you know more tactile press oh i remember what i was going to say so you know that feeling of you know because everything's digital now yes. so when someone sends me a handwritten note through the post it's like the most amazing feeling mm. ever and it feels so nostalgic and you just you're so it's just this overwhelming feeling and I think we we all miss that so much because we just don't have it so I think these kind of connections and just the 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 more kind of personalized moments I think that's what we're going to see more and more of um, obviously COVID has changed things you know hugely um with you know store the store experience and being able to go in store and connect with a beauty advisor and, and have makeup done and testering and stuff so i think there's going to be huge shifts and that unfortunately is going to increase the amount of digital and ar and um av exposure for people but i think especially for older millennials and gen x i'm borderline those two generations by the way so um i think we yearn for more for more um, more than just this just digital 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 all the time so i definitely think we're going to see more of that and i really do think that these these traditional makeup artists these artists these true at heart artists key opinion leaders i think they're just going to really really just get get the credit that they deserve again more more and more you know we work with them we work with those guys so much and they might have a much 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 smaller following than a gigantic youtuber but the 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 engagement is so much better people trust the them. yeah the conversions the loyalty that you get when you actually acquire that new brand fan 
they're really immersed and they're really loyal and you can build upon that and also um they they're press worthy so not only are you filming a whole load of content or whatever with that makeup artist but you can also do you know provide quotes to press and you know do lots of features and things and so really kind of making more of of your um activation with with that talent and, and i for me it's almost like it's important to me because that's where my career started you know mm. charlotte my final question what is next for Seattle london well, we have two amazing new collaborations launching this year. Um, neither have been announced yet, so I can't say. But all I can say, little hint, one is not a real person and one is a real person. So we've got a bit of a mix this year. Um, we have one more kind of Disney-esque collab for um, late spring. And then we decided to have a bit of a Disney break because we were like, you know what? One thing we don't like to be as a brand and that is predictable. Sure. And we felt that if we keep doing the same kind of Disney, and obviously they're none of them the same. Jessica couldn't be more opposite to Miss Piggy. But if we keep going down that road, it will get predictable. So we're really mixing it up come fall. We've got a really exciting collaboration with um, an absolute babe. Um, and someone who hit our screens last lockdown, um, star of a show that we all got very, very, very addicted to. And that's all I can say. Oh, my mind is going a mile a minute now. <laughs> I might have to send you my guesses and we'll see how close I okay, am. What I will say is it's not the Tiger King, okay? Oh, thank that's God. All right? Oh, I so- just, I would have been <laughs> shocked to see Seattle London, the Carol Baskin collection. <laughs> <laughs> or Joe, was his name Joe, the Tiger King? Mm, yeah, direct that, from prison doing a collab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be pretty unexpected, wouldn't it? We'd be like, yeah, so we have um, leopard print wraps. Uh, no, it's no one from Tiger King. It's another show. But anyway, it's really exciting. We're so, 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 oh, we can't wait for it. Um, so, yeah, so two really exciting collaborations this year. A ton of new product launches, um, lots of resurgence in nail because you know what? You know, the stats that that supply gave me and said to me that it's seven year cycles. Lo and behold, 2014, the nail market fell off the side of a cliff, it felt like. And here we are in 2021, seven years later. And nail is booming again. So you know what? Mintel, they got it right. We are seeing a huge resurgence in nail art. If you look through any Instagram feed, so many people are being so adventurous and expressive with their nail art, with their manicures. Um, Celebrities are rocking um, crazy nail art again. So for us, it's amazing because that's our heritage. We haven't launched anything fun in nail apart from, you know, until last year when we started bringing back nail launches. So we've got a lot more to come and we're super excited. That was Charlotte Knight, founder and CEO of Ciate London, which you can find on Instagram at Ciate London. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty lovers can find us. 
I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.